Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Anna, a white mom from L.A. This is Checklists and Merit Badges, JPB Gerald on whiteness. And I'm thrilled that Anna is back to guest co-host this episode with me. Anna, how are you doing? Hey, Andrew. I'm good. Uh, yeah, things are tense around here. <laughs> um, my kids had their first day of school today, TK and third grade. First day at school, we're all at home. Yep. Not how I pictured it. You know, while I don't love it, I'm grateful, I think, that our district is remote right now. Yeah. It's hard for all of us, but I think they're doing their best to sort of consider the public health of our teachers and students and communities. So I appreciate that. Um, all of us cried at one point or another today. Yep. <laughs> um, we're going to wake up and try again tomorrow. And uh, I'm also, you know, really grateful for the school community, the friendships I have there. And also really fortunate that my family is healthy, housed, and has food on the table. So yes, it's okay. How are you? We don't go back till Monday, but yeah, I, I have some trepidation for sure. I think my fourth grader, I have some faith that she can do some independent work. Uh, my first grader, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be a lot of hand-holding and yep. not really sure how any of that happens while also getting anything else done, like say this podcast, but right. <laughs> uh, definitely grateful that those choices don't involve things like losing my house or leaving my kids alone to watch themselves because that's real too. For sure. Things are extremely difficult for so many people and for a variety of different reasons and circumstances. Yep. And I'm really excited to share this conversation. Yes, me too. There's been a whole lot written about you know what school looks like in the fall recently, particularly regards to the steps that parents are taking, like pods. And mm-hmm. I think a, a few voices have really risen up through all the noise. And we were very fortunate to have one of those voices, Dr. Shayla Reese Griffin, last episode. And today we get to bring you another JPB Gerald. Yes. Ugh, his perspective has been so helpful. And I'm grateful because it turns out he has a lot of insight beyond just the current crisis, um, a lot of which really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, he began his career as an English language teacher. And as he started to come to terms with the ways racism showed up in those spaces, broadened his scholarship and work to racism and whiteness more generally. Yeah. Yeah. Now he's got his own podcast. It's called Unstandardized English, which everyone should check out. And he's written some really great stuff. I think uh, as a black man who grew up in very white spaces, going to the, you know, quote unquote, best schools, he's got an insight into whiteness and and what it asks in those spaces of people who are not white that I found really profound. Yes. He blew my mind. So many things. Um, He talks about meritocracy, how individual choices make up this, quote unquote, you know, all caps, the system, Hmm. self-interest as a justification for racism, and uh, what people can do to push back on all of this. Yeah, he's great. But let's not give it all away. Yeah. (laughs) Other than to say that he he highlights the ways that we white people tend to like checklists to tell us what to do, and then merit badges to celebrate the work we've done. Let's hear the conversation. Maybe you can start by just introducing yourself. Okay. My name is JPB Gerald. My first name is Justin, but go by JPB. I am a doctoral student at CUNY, City University of New York, Hunter College. My research focuses on language, race, and whiteness in education. 
because my previous background was as a language or an ELT professional English language teacher. And in the midst of your studies, you also have launched a new project, right? It's a project I'm doing where I teach people about whiteness, where I have them go off and try to change their institutions. It's called the Ezel Project because I want the world to be safer for my son, Ezel, who is five months old. Oh, beautiful. How did that transition come about for you from language to more mm-hmm. broadly whiteness? So I was a language teacher for eight, nine years. I started studying just generally education. So I was, because I was a language teacher, I actually ended up in a class about teaching English language learners and research in English language learners. And I came across articles linking language and race particularly the work of Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa. And I was in the process of doing a survey for that class where I asked people pretty broadly, are, what is your experience teaching race in your language education classrooms? This is a survey of teachers, of, yeah. of English language teachers, right? And I, I made a mistake in getting it out there. So I only had participation of the fellow classmates of my master's program. But that made it interesting for me because I knew them and I wanted to see what they were doing. And the responses I got were curious to me. So some people simply answered the questions. And then a couple of people messaged me. I put the thing on whatever Facebook page for my master's program. And a couple of people sent me private messages saying, we should not be talking about race. That was one of two responses that got my like hackles up. Like, what is going on here? The, fir- the survey said, do you talk about race? Right. Not you should and you, are you or, or are you talking about well or anything like that? Just do you. So like a reasonable response to that could be, no, I don't, because I don't think that I should. That's fine. And then another question in the same survey was, did your teacher training program discuss race? Because I really just wanted to know. I just wanted to see what the lay of the land was. And a lot of them said, yes. And then some of them said, no. Let's be clear. This is my master's program. I went to that program. We did not talk about race. Mm-hmm. So I, I was wondering, like, the people who said yes. What were they referring to? What are you talking about? <laughs> and then it was interesting. The people who said no often were the people who said they did discuss it in their classes because they had more experience in, like, race theory and so forth because they'd gone out and studied it themselves like I did. So the teachers who did talk about race in their own classrooms were the ones who recognized that your program had not, in fact, talked about race. Right. Maybe at some point we read an article that mentioned race. I don't remember. That could have happened. We definitely didn't have a class on it. We didn't even have. We definitely didn't have a unit on it. We definitely never focused directly on race or the race of our students. And I don't think I remember discussing being Black more than tangentially at any point in the program. They certainly wouldn't have stopped me from doing it, but it didn't come up. And the sad thing is that I didn't even really notice the absence of it until after the fact, until I really put this survey out there. And knowing that we hadn't studied it, I expected them all to say no. And then when they said yes, I was like, these people think that they studied race (laughs) and they haven't. Mm. So I got kind of mad after that. So the confusion around how much race was actually in your master's program and the assertion by some people that you shouldn't even be talking about race, this is what sort of pushed you from the language space into race more broadly. And I guess this is sort of what led to the idea that you have come up with of the altruistic shield. I'm wondering if maybe you can tell us a bit about what the altruistic shield is. 
So one of those things they tell you in, in research is that sometimes the most interesting thing is what they call the marginalia, like what's hiding there. That's not just the question. Mm. The question I ask is, did, did people study race, right? But then the question I really started asking is, why is it that even before I ask them about race, they get so upset? So then I started thinking about that. So what is it about this field makes it so that people try to stop you from talking about it before you even talk about it? Before you even get close to it, we all know, at least now, that it's difficult for people to talk about race, but that's not just a teaching thing. But it's that people in certain professions, I was theorizing, will put up the the goodness of their work, the pro-social reputation of their work as a preemptive defense. There's many frameworks for the defensiveness itself, and I'm not saying they're useless, but I was saying like, before they even get to that, the the goodness of the field, it, it like keeps them from getting close enough to even, before they even get accused or criticized. Yeah, the altruistic shield basically is anyone who's doing something that is commonly known as good for society. It could be any person who thinks that their job is uh, pro-social or altruistic, will use that identity as a preemptive defense, so that's the shield, from any engagement with the possibility that they might be complicit in white supremacy or racism. You could use it for other forms of oppression, but my lens is race, so that's where I talk about. So I guess you could say altruistic shield for classism or gender or things like that doesn't mean it's not valid, but my analysis and my theorization is focused around race. So for myself, I think it's, this is a completely relevant conversation as a parent in an integrating school. Like unless you're really doing the work to inspect, like if, if you've made the decision to attend your neighborhood public school, to invest in your neighborhood, to, you know, believe you believe in integration that doesn't excuse you from like it's some deep internal work of decentering whiteness and practicing anti-racism just because you're there. Yeah, I wrote the thing because I, I was in the language field and I was talking to language educators to be like, this is particularly true in our field because it's one of those things where not only am I teaching students of color mostly, but I'm also teaching immigrants mostly. And therefore, I am helping people who are just so unbelievably oppressed that I must be a saint for what I am doing. Right. So I am not to be challenged. And the thing is, I don't want to come down and make it seem like I don't think that teachers work hard. Of course they do. The problem is there are things that are built into the system and chosen by people. It's not just this mystical system thing that make it so that no matter how hard you work, unless you're also working on this specifically, you're just reifying and underlining things that are harmful to certain people, especially to people that you think that you're saving. I think this is such an important concept to think about as parent in community, like we can't live on acts of yesterday. We are all participants, but our participation does not limit our harm. Like we have to do the work to get real with structural racism and our participation in it and where it lies in our body and where it has been internalized in us and where it comes out and, and where we're hiding behind the shield. And I, so I really, I, I feel like that gives me a lot to reflect on. Like, do I use the shield? 
Do I wear it? Do I put it up for certain things? Do I get defensive? Yeah, it's a fascinating concept. I definitely gives me a lot to think about, too. Um, I'm wondering if you see a connection between this defensiveness, how, how it shows up, uh, you know, sort of more broadly, and, and what relationship that may have to this current conversation about pandemic pods, you know, recognizing that the term pod can refer to a wide range of things from mm-hmm. pulling your kids out of school and hiring a teacher to sort of child care collectives. But is there a way that this defensiveness, this shield impacts those discussions, do you think? When I talk about these pods and how it can increase inequity depending on how they're manifesting, the fact is, if at the very least there is the potential for increased inequity, and particularly not just, I do hate when if I point out that it's along racial lines, people will say, but what about class? Yes, class too, but we can't just use class and pretend that race is not there. People will say, why are you blaming individuals? It's a systemic issue, right? They say this to me. This is the most common thing I'm getting as pushback to what I've wrote. So uh, it's a systemic issue. And they'll say, usually systemic is in like all caps, a systemic issue, which I find interesting in a couple of ways, because five, 10, 15 years ago, nobody would have said systemic issue, or certainly white folks wouldn't have said systemic issue. They were still in the individualistic, like racism is just those bad people over there. Another thing I'm thinking with the systemic, they say it's out of my hands, like the school system is failing us. True. And it's very easy to point to all of the problems in the system, which are very extant. This is just the latest and most stark example, but it's not new. (laughs) If If it had not been failing us all this time, then I don't think all of this would have happened. So sure, yes, it's a systemic issue, but... How do we think this system is built? Right. Like the system is not imaginary, right? It's not theoretical. Or like controlled by by robots. These are actual actors making decisions, pulling levers, hiring people, firing people, writing policy, putting policy into law. And in response to what is being asked of them, right? Like the the demands that are put on the system is what drives the policies to appease those kind of loudest, most listened to voices, which tend to be white and wealthy voices. And so, yeah, to say it's the system doing it means the system is responding to you, right? The system responds to me. I can't blame the system because the system is inclined to listen to me. The reason I got upset about the pods is not just because inequity is a thing, but I, I don't know that it's all that unusual, like the particular details of it is a little weird and so forth. And the reason that this is popping up and all over the place is because it's just kind of stark. But the system being, you know, blamed for this, I can tell you some of these people will turn around and say, why don't these black people just work harder and blame it on them individually? They'll say that the system is the reason that they can't choose equity or choose things that support the full community, Mm. but then they'll turn around and say, this is an individual decision and that's why you deserve all of the things that you get. The system is the problem for me and my family, but the system is certainly not the reason that you you know, don't have generations of family wealth built up. Or... And so one of the things I bring up a lot is like the, the, just the sort of the concept of the lawn sign for Black Lives Matter in a gated community, mm. right? Like when you think about that juxtaposition, you want to show your support for the movement. And I believe that most of them really do, like they see these moments and they're just like, this is bad, I need to do something. And they'll put the sign in their lawn 
but they don't have any black neighbors. <laughs> and I'm sure they, they themselves are not standing on the lawn keeping the black people out of their community. But what are they doing in their community with a gate, whether they have a literal gate or just a metaphorical financial gate mm. that is making it so that community is more integrated and into, like genuinely integrated, not a to- two token people on the block. Yeah, we've distanced ourselves from the explicit racism in all these decisions with this kind of clever language that allows us to ignore it. It's like it allows us to protect whiteness without saying that that's what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. And to protect whiteness and to protect property. And of course, whiteness is property is one of the theories that's the most resonant from Harris in 1993. I'm getting very academic here, but people should look it up. And so like when you think about whiteness as property, thinking about it's something that we have to protect at all costs, not we, but you, I guess, <laughs> uh, have to protect at all costs. You're off the hook. It's a very literal in the sense that that is where most white wealth has come from in the United States, mm-hmm. property, that, property that was stolen, obviously, is that if there's only so much property, and there is, then you must not allow more people to share in it because of this zero-sum way that our society is constructed. When people just say it's hatred, that's not, it's not interesting. The question is not, is there hatred? It's why is there hatred? And if you look up like Kendi and some other thinkers, you'll see that although people certainly do hate, uh, a lot of the time racism is a justification for self-interest. And if the other people are just as good as you and they deserve the same treatment, then what you're doing is bad. (laughs) Very few people are okay with doing what they think is bad. So you need some justification for why it's okay. And you have to deserve the property, the literal property of the house and the property of whiteness. And the other people have to not deserve it. So this is getting us directly to the idea of meritocracy and tying meritocracy to race and racism. If you are able to convince yourself and justify the fact that you have more than others, right? Because meritocracy is the idea that both intelligence and effort put together mean that, well, you are smarter and you worked harder, so therefore you have more. And are deserving more you have, right? Right, exactly. And it's one of the things that I, from your podcast, Unstandardized English, the episode on exceptional merit, You said unequal societies that are not actually meritocratic depend on the idea of meritocracy in order to operate. Yeah, because you have to tell people that if they're in a bad place, they deserve it. And maybe if they work a little harder, then you could get out of the position you're in. You don't have to tell that for their sake. You have to tell that to them for your own sake. And it, and, it, and the heart, what's even harder about it is that it's, it's very difficult to quote unquote rise in America, but a few will. And the problem is when you do and you are embraced by the quote unquote elite, they don't say, now go back and help the people that are in your community. They say, now you're part of our community now. So don't worry about them. And they break the chain so that the collective action is is more difficult. And it's it's hard because you see this in like academia, you see this in lots of places where they say, look, just wait, don't rock the boat. Maybe when you get a little bit more power, maybe you can do what you want to do, but don't say anything yet. Don't say anything yet. And you say, all right, when can I say? Not yet, not yet. Give me a little bit more. And then 
all of a sudden you're 50 and then you didn't do anything. And that was 20 years when you could have been trying to do something. Like we let you in from the outside, but like now that you're here, don't rock the boat. With meritocracy, we will allow a few people who are outside of the property of whiteness in. And those people will be the exceptional people, but we don't want their entire group to be part of things. Right. Right. We, we need a few of those exceptional people to say, see, this is not about race. Exactly. And it's one of those things is for me, being uh, a black guy at very white schools that were not integrated, let's put it that way, they were quote unquote gifted schools. And then at an Ivy League university, those are all places where exceptional merit is prized for everyone, but particularly if you're not white. And so I've only come around to this criticism of meritocracy and tying it to race in recent years because it was superficially beneficial to me for a long time Mm. because the schools will tell you're here, you deserve this. Mm. But when I realized that when they criticized me in school, it was for the ways in which I didn't match their conception of whiteness. Mm. I mean, not just my skin color, but I mean, the when I veered off of the way they thought of intelligence and so forth. And I thought like I was in the best positions I could be at academically. This is the most exclusive schools. If that was still a place where they were doing this to people who they thought were quote unquote exceptional, then how is everyone else being treated in other places? Yeah, I think you wrote, what happens when a student is capable of any other is told he is loved by his schools, but fed whiteness as the standard to match. What all such students deserve and need is radical love. There's a conditional love that is given from whiteness, unfortunately. And when I say whiteness, I'm not necessarily talking about all white people or whatever, but there are conditions that have to be met to be accepted by whiteness, especially if you're not nominally part of it. And if you match those things, then they'll let you halfway in the door. But you always have to be looking out behind yourself to ensure that you don't get thrown back out. And one of the things that happened to me, like I my, I went to the same school for 14 years. And most of that time, like looking back, there were some things that were screwed up, but I didn't understand them as being related to my race until I was an adult and I look back at it. However, some of the things I knew at the time were related to my race is that one of the conditions that whiteness proposed to me and to people in general was that you didn't take anything from them. So all of a sudden we get to 11th grade and now I'm black because I might take their place in the colleges they want to go. Right. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. like, I went, I've known them since I was three, and we didn't really talk about race that much. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to have a question to me about affirmative action. So it was just a very conditional type of love. How do we start to push back on this? Mm-hmm. You know, moving from this kind of conditional love to what you've called radical love. Right. What can we be doing to make, you know, more progress on this? So I think that the individual work that people need to do, do the readings, consume the podcasts and stuff like that. People need to do it. That's I can't really tell how to change your hearts and minds. I don't think a lot of the time that you can forcibly change people's hearts and minds by themselves. I think something has to happen. Some circumstance has to be there 
because if someone isn't ready to hear it, it's just, it's not going to work. And I think that I had things that I really had to learn, yeah, about race, but about lots of things, because as a man, there were things that I had to and continue to have to learn about gender. As a person who didn't grow up poor, there were certainly things that I had to learn about class. And some of these things I was not going to learn from personal experience. I wasn't going to learn about a woman's experience from my personal experience. I had to learn. I had to listen to people. And I certainly had to be in the right mindset to learn these things. And I don't claim that the journey is finished for me on all of these things because it's not. But I said all of that to say that although I think people have to come to their individual changes themselves, what I try to do is bring people to the concept that they do have the power to change whatever institutions they're connected to, whether that's a parent working with their school system or a teacher working in a school or just a worker at any job that they're a manager at this place. And they start to think, well, there's a problem with racism. And I don't really, I read this book and I don't know what to do about it. And the thing is, I think sometimes we get caught up because people will read nine books and they don't do anything. Not just because they don't care, but because they don't really know what to do. And nor should the books necessarily be telling you, because like a book that's like, do these three things, it's a checklist, right? But like tomorrow... What can you do in your workplace to make your workplace safer for racialized people? You could do something. Not fix all the problems tomorrow, but what step can you take tomorrow to actually take action to move in that direction? Because I know the circles that I have grown up in. I know that the people I know are people who went to Ivy League schools and such because I did. And therefore, that's who I met growing up. I know that they most of them have some sort of institutional power somewhere. And parents are in the same position, especially if they work together. So I offer I, I offer guidance to people on like, all right, you work in this place. Okay, let's talk about how whiteness impacts the place where you work or study or your kids go to school or whatever it is. What switch can you flip so that tomorrow there's a little bit more light in the darkness, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're going to stop after that. Because I, I don't want people to come to me and I say, oh, we can work on this thing. And then you did one thing and you're like, solved racism. And I'm like, no. My work you, here is done. You don't get a merit badge for doing one thing. Yeah. There, there's, I think the challenge of changing the mindset is really important. And I think the the other piece of merit badges and and checklists is that I think particularly now in the kind of cultural moment we're in, there's a lot of people who are thinking about their, you know, complicity in white supremacy in new ways, which is, I think, powerful and at least some like sliver of hope in this, in these otherwise relatively dark times. But I think it's also, there's an opportunity in this moment to really highlight the gulf between the people who have done some race work, particularly like white people, particularly like white teachers, white parents, people who have done some race work and people who haven't done any people who are just beginning to be comfortable referring to themselves as white and people who have done a lot of thinking and reading about it. And I think it leads people often to want to declare their wokeness, to put on their sash with their merit badge and be like, oh no, look at, I read Kendi. I read Robin DiAngelo. I'm good. I have arrived. And then take the merit badge, claim the stamp of I am anti-racist. I'm an anti-racist parent or I'm an anti-racist teacher. And I guess it, That also feels problematic, like probably better that they've taken any steps than none at all. But the feeling like you've arrived and that you are done with your work 
just because you can see some gap between you and some people behind you feels really problematic. I think a big part of that, what I say and why I do the work that I do is people can read a bunch of books and they, they certainly should. Mm -hmm. And that often will give them a better sense of terminology, which is what's better that they do that than that they don't do that. But if they really are internalizing it, they would know that you're not supposed to declare that you finished anything. You can finish the book, but finish the journey anyway. But somehow people read the book and they don't understand that they're not finished yet. <laughs> That's why I try to talk about different aspects of whiteness itself, because there's books about aspects of whiteness and there's books about race. And it's still just the natural inclination of people, particularly white people, but not just white people, to externalize and still want to say that's that problem over there. Or they'll read a white fragility or, or something else that's about an aspect of whiteness and say, well, I have this problem that's a part of me. So instead of saying it's the problem over there, it's like a, like a gangrenous limb that I got to cut off. And then, and then, and now it's gone and now it's over. It's like, no, <laughs> it's still there. Yeah, that gangrene is still creeping up your shoulder. It's all there. It's, it's all of you. you. You have to keep doing it. So I think all the people saying it's a systemic issue are the people who've read a little bit about whiteness and are just like, oh, wow, look at this system. And I'm like, Right. They've taken a step away from, like you said before, like the, the, those people are racist. I'm not burning crosses. I wasn't carrying a tiki torch and wearing my khakis. Like those people are racist. So then the next step of like, oh shit, this is actually bigger than just those people or me. There's, there is a systemic issue going on here. Right. But then you can't stop. But it's just like, you, there's a system. And then you see that some of the things that you're doing are bad, but there's, you still have to get a little bit farther between understanding that, okay, it's not just some of the things you've done are bad. Then that's easy to say, we all make mistakes, which we do. But like, you say, oh, I made some mistakes. I won't do that anymore. But you have to really say the big choices I'm making, not even just like I used to find it hard to talk about being white. Good that you've made th this progress. But where am I sending my kids to school? What am I pushing for in the school? What are the consequences of what I'm pushing for in the school? Mm. Um, am I using my cultural capital to prioritize my child in ways that's going to harm a child that, whose parents don't have the same cultural capital? And it comes back to this idea of people say, well, I'm just taking care of my kids when they do the pod stuff or anything. It's just the latest manifestation of that. And yes, but we need to think about what it means to take care of our kids in a way that doesn't harm other kids. Because if you say I'm taking care of my kids and some other kid has less because of it, you're going right back to the concept that your kid deserves it and that other kid deserves it a little bit less. It's really hard to get people to admit that they actually believe that their kid deserves something more than another kid. Not like I'm, I should work equally hard for all kids. I feel like there's a difference between my kid, I'm going to make sure that my kid is taken care of, but to the next level of my kid deserves more. 
than right. a method. That's the part that I think gets often like we we gloss over that linguistically. I'm just trying to get the best for my kid without having to f- face the fact that that means inherently that I d- my kid deserves more than other kids. If you're on an airplane and a plane's going down and you only got two arms, you're going to pick up your kid. It's fine. But in that situation, everybody is in the same amount of danger. But the point is the general danger of life now is not shared equally. Right. And that's one of the things that if people are going to be saying Black Lives Matter, they can't be saying, but my kid matters a little bit more. <laughs> you know? Lives matter, but not as much as my kid. Yeah. Right. Well, and and I think going back to the meritocracy thing, one of the other things you said was meritocracy and anti-racism are antonyms. And I think part of the meritocracy thing is like, I've worked to get to a point where I have the ability to give my kid lots. I've earned that. I confer it on them because they deserve it. And our good friend, Courtney Martin said, what if, what if my kid deserves no end of love and only proportional resources? And so I can look around and see, okay, right. Okay. So meritocracy doesn't really exist. This is a fallacy, but I got to get this for my kid. And then we, and we divorce ourselves from that. And then at the other side, we're like, okay, I got to take this Zoom class on anti-racism, anti-racist parenting. I got to be an anti-racist parent. And then what we're trying to do at integrated schools is fuse those two things. That like, actually, those two things are connected. You you make a good point about the resources thing, or I guess she made the point, but you know what I'm saying. But (laughs) we equate love and resources, especially Mm. in this country. Mm. So we think that if I love my kid, I'm going to give them every possible resource, even if the resource is not replenishable. You know what I'm saying? Even if it's finite. Right, exactly. I'm going to put the life jacket on my kid standing on the beach. That's basically what it is. I'm going to put a life jacket on the kid that's already on the beach. Yeah. And one of the things that's really, it's important to think about with, I'm going to protect my kid that's already protected by society, is we also think that, and the research has even shown, is that so much research is built in this way to reify oppression that a family that loves their kid but doesn't give them a lot because they don't have a lot is seen as depriving them of this or that. And mm. the way the research bears out is that the people, they say, if you don't take your kid to this class, well, then they're not going to. And if you don't take your kid, then they're not going to. And then it's, if you don't, and, then, and it just goes on again and again. And it's just all so much, just so much pressure. And I understand the pressure. Mm. So I don't blame anyone for feeling overwhelmed by the pressure. But like, we have to push back against the pressure. It's fiction. And I remember this from being one of those kids who was sent to this and that. All I wanted to do was just stay home for the summer, but I had good sense somewhere. <laughs> and after a while, it just became, it's summertime. I guess I'm going to this camp. And there's nothing wrong with camp. I'm just saying the idea would be if the kid just is home or something, then they're losing. They're losing. Right. Like you're not giving your kid any what's going to go on their college application. Right. That they did nothing for a whole summer. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because you say, I don't want my kid to fall behind in the rat race. But like when you think about it, being so consumed in all this, you're not winning anything. Like this is not fun. 
You know what I'm saying? To be doing this and trying not to fall behind all the time. The way whiteness as a system and meritocracy and all these things work is they're only good for like two people. We're all fighting each other down here and some people are losing more than others, but it's not good for anyone besides like Jeff Bezos. That's it. That's who's, that's who's winning. And everybody else is losing to a different extent. And people think they're winning by pushing other people down, but then there's another family over there that's doing a little bit better. And so you're losing to them. And then there's another family that's doing a little bit better. So you're losing to them. And the question is, how much of the property of whiteness do you have? And if you have a little bit less, then you need to make sure that the people below you don't get any of it. So the wages of what? Right. The wages of whiteness. And that's why the concept of the love and the resources and the fact that we can't separate the two is probably why the entire country is in the situation that it's in. Yeah. Where do you see signs of hope? I feel like the it, the people who have declared themselves to be anti-racist teachers are problematic. But the, <laughs> and you mentioned in some writing that like the, the people most likely to actually be doing the work are the least likely to claim that mantle, the least likely to try to like, display their merit badge. What do you see as e- either like character traits or like hopeful instances of people like really engaging in the work and trying to do it better? I think that what I've noticed, at least from especially with my own podcast, is that not everybody, but a lot of the people that are on there are fellow early-ish career scholars who are doing things related language, race, whiteness, all that sort of thing. And what I've noticed about the ones that I've really gotten along with is there's a curiosity. Maybe it's better. I don't want to necessarily call it humility because you know, that, that sort of creates a different image. But I think there's a curiosity and there's also a, there's just a self-interrogation, but I, I use interrogation positively because I think there's a problem sometimes where people self-flagellate all the time. They just say they, they're wringing their hands and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And then you're just looking for, for an ice flow to grab onto and you're like, ah, oh, anti-racism, I got it. Right. All right. Now I can stop wringing my hands. Whereas if you're curious and you're probably never going to find a stable ice flow intellectually, then that curiosity, that, that sort of perpetual inquiry. And I sort of hit a wall myself a year and a half ago where I realized that the only way out was through. I was talking around race, but race was still showing up. I think... I really appreciate that. And I think one of the things that I have heard from you is this idea of the defensiveness and this all caps, I'm not this, or what do you expect me, or it's the system and like the ability to slow down because I think it's natural to feel defensive. You know, I feel like lots of times in this work for myself and my own journey I can't deny the fact that I get defensive and the ability to, to slow down and sit with that and think, okay, what part of this is what I need to hear right now? Where can I grow from this? That's a big thing because it's one of the hard things about any form of oppression that people are trying to either unlearn or work against in themselves or work against in other things is that it's not going to go away tomorrow and you're going to screw up like you will, like you're going to. So it's more about how do you get back up after you fall 
um, and expecting that you will. When I find that people are doing the work, they are not afraid to call themselves white, but they're also not afraid to call me black. Mm, That's one thing. Right. Because I've noticed, and it's not a one-to-one thing, but like in 2020, knowing that I write about this stuff and I say black often, and it's one thing, if people are still saying, African-American man who, you know, and they, they, yeah, yeah. It's like, you want to make sure. Kind of breathy too. I don't upset anybody by saying, and when they're trying really hard not to upset anybody, they're probably going to upset somebody and then they're not going to be able to handle it. You got to get past that point. You can't just be like locked up in that position forever. Just unsure of what to do. And also if you're unsure you should ask someone who either you're close to and you trust or someone that like as a person who does this, you actually pay them to learn about this stuff, right. say these things, talk about these things. And if you've never had a chance to do that, you're never going to do it. You're just not going to do it. Right. In the people you've come across interviewing for your podcast guests you've had on, have you found hope? Have you found people who are engaging in this uh well, two of the people I interviewed this spring, they're both identified as white and they were language teachers. And I was asking them questions about how they came to understand themselves as white and how their whiteness had impacted their work and their lives. And they went to grad school and they got the language for what they were already feeling, which is what happened to me too. And they, how they really show up in their work to challenge, especially their white students, to do things differently. But what I noticed about both of them, and I don't know if this is hopeful or sad, but both of them, they had siblings who did not identify as white. Both of them grew up from a very young age with a sibling who was visibly and treated as not white by the world. And they saw the difference between this person being treated that way and the way they were treated. And they had a very early understanding of this. And although they didn't necessarily have the language for it, they thought it is bad that these people are being treated this way. And I've also noticed that some of the people who are taking the class I give on whiteness, like they have had similar situations where they're interested in learning this stuff because They had some close early peer relationship. And I wonder, okay, so you have a close early peer relationship. It certainly doesn't guarantee that you do anti-racist work as an adult, but it certainly doesn't hurt for you to at least be more open to it. And so it made me hopeful for them and for anyone who's had a close peer relationship that they really just need language to be introduced to them to understand these things. But it also made me wonder about people who've had no pure relationship when they were younger, what they can do. Because I think in their case, that group, which is again, most white people needs to do a lot more extra work because they don't have that close peer relationship. And I don't think that can be forced upon them. I think they have to do that work. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the crux of integrated schools, right? Is even if we didn't get it, ourselves growing up, you can't actually give that opportunity to your kid. And like you said, it's not a guarantee. It doesn't ensure that your kid will turn out to be 
arrived at anti-racism, but it certainly gives them a much better chance. And it makes the journey much easier to, to put words to what you have been feeling is much different than changing your heart. Like the journey and the work that has to be done to change your heart when you're fully formed is so vastly different than the work that your kids have to do, which really, it's not that there's no work, but it is sure easy for kids to find each other's shared humanity. And that's why, I mean, that's why you all are doing what you're doing. Because even if their parents don't have the, the background to figure this out in, in, in as authentic a way as their kids do, and the parents might simply have to do all this work to figure it out, if their kids have close peer relationships, they have a much better chance of doing it. Yeah. There it is. That's the mission. Thank you so much for coming on for all your work. And before you go, tell us just a little bit about uh, your podcast, Unstandardized English. Yeah, it originally started as being a podcast where I went over various words in English and talked about the racism in them. And then I started talking about everything. So it's called Unstandardized English. And you can find it on, what do they say? Wherever you get your podcast. We'll throw a link to it in the show notes as well. I, you can find my all my articles and my writing on my website, jbbjl.com. If you're interested in working with me, it's on there too. Thank you so much for your time and for your insight and for all the work that you're doing. And I will have to stay in touch and keep up with your projects. Yeah. All right. Huge thanks to JPB Gerald for coming on and sharing. There is a link to Unstandardized English in the show notes. Yes, there are also details on the Ezel Project, which is a great opportunity to learn from JPB and support someone doing this work. Um, man, that was a big conversation. A lot of big yeah. topics. What do you think? I think the thing that I'm sitting with is this idea of like, well, I just need to do what's best for my child. Right. And and how that so often does not have a net neutral outcome, right? Yeah. Like in the case of pods, lining up teachers, tutors, pulling out of the public school system altogether, those aren't neutral decisions and, and they have a cost to society, even if we choose not to see it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I loved when he said that we have to think about what it means to take care of our own kids in a way that doesn't harm other kids. Yeah. How about you, Anna? What did, what stood out to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, as someone who is sort of in the practice of integration, anti-racist school integration, certainly I'm still learning. We're still practicing, you know, considering my impact all the time. This idea about cultural capital that he talked about, mm. you know, what are the ways I use my cultural capital at school intentionally or, you know, inadvertently? that can potentially harm families at school who don't have that same cultural capital. You know, this is not the use my privilege for good Olympics. Right. This is not like saviorism. This is about how can I let that privilege, that power, that social influence, that whatever, just to let it go mm. and sit back, be in community, whether it's on a Zoom with the principal or in the six-foot socially distanced line to pick up my kids, you know, supplies. Right. Um, you know, when I see the principal, can I just say hello and not ask for, you know, all the inside info, have the special side conversation, you know, find out in advance who our teachers are, all of those, like, whiteness cultural norms that are just unnecessary and harmful. 
yeah, it's yeah. How do we how do we let go of those things? Yeah, particularly in this yeah in this moment where there's the desire to hold on to them, to cling to them, is even stronger because right. because everything else is so crazy. Everything else is slipping through our fingers. Yeah. So you know what can I? What sort of certainty can I hold on to? Yeah. Well, big thanks to JPB and thank you to you, Anna, for coming on and and uh, co-hosting with me. It's always nice to have you. Yeah. Thanks. So nice to be here. If people want to chat more about these topics, what would you recommend they do? Well, first, I recommend that they should join our Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash integrated schools. Uh, not only are there message boards, but we also have an awesome monthly podcast happy hour, yep. a bring your own beverage opportunity, chance to chat with you, Andrew, yeah. as well as other listeners. Yeah. And it's a way to support this all volunteer effort. Keep us from having to read ads in the middle of this podcast. That's right. Our listenership has grown quite a bit lately. So if you're new here, welcome. And we'd be incredibly grateful for your support. And if you like to make matching donations to support Black and Indigenous and people of color, JPB also has a patron account, patreon.com slash unstandardized. You can hit them up there. And please don't forget to share this episode with your friends. Connect with us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Join us in conversation. Yeah. And as always, we're grateful to be in this with you. So we try to know better and do better. See you next time.